We're on part two of what will turn out to be, I believe, a three-part look at a chunk of scripture, which is Mark 6, 14 through 29. Guys, I know that you may be able to relate to this if you've been around the gal that you're uh, uh, connected to in some way, whether you're a boyfriend or a fiance or a husband. There are those times when, like on Monday, she'll say, you know, I think the car is making a funny sound, and I heard it twice today, and you you say, okay, I'll, uh, I'll think about that. <laughs> and then Wednesday, she says again, you know, honey, I, I think that car is making that strange sound again, and it happened again today. And you say, were you on a bumpy road at the time? You know, that 23 South, south of 94, is just nothing but potholes right now. No, I was on the newly paved road on the way to work. Hmm, okay. And you say to yourself, she's imagining stuff. And then on Saturday, you say, oh, it's a sunny day. I'm going to take the car to the car wash. And you come home from the car wash and you're dialing somebody on your phone and your wife says, who are you calling? And you say, the dealership. We need to get that car looked at. Don't know if that's ever happened to you. But what makes the difference? There's evidence and she's told you about the evidence, but sometimes the evidence has to become personal before it becomes actionable. You have to get personally involved enough with it to say, yeah, we should really do something about that. Sometimes the evidence is just too obvious to ignore, and I would say that's exactly what Mark in his gospel is doing for us. He's presenting so much evidence that we just cannot ignore it. He's putting it right out there personally because it gets personal. It was personal for him. I mean, he knew Jesus. He knew the people that were surrounding Jesus, including Simon Peter, who told a lot of these stories to him, so he got firsthand information. And if you'll recall from last week's look at the very beginning of this passage, Mark 6, 14 through 29, we saw many, many people were looking at Jesus doing things that required an explanation. And they tried to explain it, but sometimes they didn't want to explain it by admitting that he just might be that promised Messiah. So they tried to explain it based on their own filters, their own worldview. So some people would say, okay, I can't deny that he fed 5,000 people or that he spoke to the winds and the waves and they obeyed him. You know, I can't deny that stuff. Yes, he performed miracles. But because of my worldview, I have to come up with a different explanation about why. So I think he did it because he was given the power by Satan to do these miracles. And uh, Mark is trying to say, no. And I'm going to continue to give you more evidence so that you can see that that's not the case. Or they would say, yes, he did fulfill prophecy, but he just read the book of Isaiah and he's trying to do these things on purpose to show that it looks like he's fulfilling prophecy. Well, we have to examine the evidence and see, was he doing that? Was he a fraud? Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic or is he Lord? So Mark presents so much evidence right in our faces that it confronts us and demands a verdict. Come to think about it, that'd be a really good title for a book. Somebody should write a book by that title. Oh, you mean like this one? Yes, it's already been written. It's an encyclopedic look at all the evidence, by the way. Tough read, but a good one. We're picking up where we left off in our deep dive into Mark 6, 14 through 29, where we see that John the Baptist has been not just killed, but horribly murdered because of the command of King Herod. And we still haven't quite gotten 
under the surface of the reason why. We read through it briefly as we read through that entire passage at the beginning of this three-part series. However, we're learning a lot about Jesus' identity along the way. And so we're going to look a little bit more at Herod and why he did what he did and how it's affecting Herod. We're going to see some of his reaction to this whole event as well. And here's something I really want you to grasp. Uh, I was having coffee with David the other day, and we were talking about some pastors. There's one that we both like to watch occasionally, Matt Chandler. And when he sees that people's heads are down and they're starting to nod off, he'll say, look up, because he wants to get their attention. And so I'm thinking, I need to come up with a catchphrase to catch your interest when I'm doing something like, look to me in my eyeballs. <laughs> I want you to catch this. And so I'll do that. I'll say, look to me in my eyeballs, because I want you to grasp this. Many people who were confronted with Jesus' actions tried to explain them, but they still came out with the wrong answers. And people today can still do that. We can have all the same evidence, but we can come up to wildly different conclusions because of our worldviews. That's what happens when people who haven't arrived yet at the right answers are trying to wrestle with them. And yet, I don't want to cast a negative light on those who have good questions. That's how we do arrive ultimately at the right answer. So we've got to answer those tough questions. We have to ask them, I mean. So many will finally get to the place, I hope and pray, when they can say, okay, I get it. I have finally shifted my thinking so that I'm where the eyewitnesses of Jesus after his resurrection are. I can see the evidence. It's been laid out before me. I accept that he is who he claimed to be. He's the risen Lord, which means now I've got to do something about that I want to walk with him. I want him to be my guide. But for those who have been walking with Christ for a number of years, I've noticed that there's a strong tendency. I lump myself into this category. It's easy for us who think we've arrived at the right answers to say, well, it's us and them. You know, kind of an us and them mentality. It's those unbelievers versus us, and we're just trying to hold down the bastion and not let them come in there and spoil what we've got going on here. And we have to be careful because we can slide right into that attitude, which is exactly where the Jewish leaders were, which is why they came against Jesus because he was questioning the status quo and introducing something about the kingdom that they totally missed, even though they had the Old Testament right there before them. Uh, somebody at a former church, not more than a million miles from here, had said once as that church was beginning to attract younger people, couple of them musicians and they said I would love to help us start a praise team if we would be open to that we said yeah let's do it so he played guitar and he brought a couple of his guitars and I went out and bought a drum set and taught my then high school daughter to play it and she was playing drums and Jeremy was playing guitar and we started introducing slowly at first we didn't want to just you know inundate them with modern praise songs but we started including one or two along with the hymns, because there's nothing wrong with those good hymns. Love them. Good theology. But this guy came up after he'd been a little disgruntled about that, and he said, you know, there are plenty of churches down the road that can offer those people those songs. And he had just about that kind of attitude, and I thought, ooh, ouch. That sounds almost like what the Jewish leaders were doing, and it's an us versus them. And if you read through the whole rest of the New Testament, including the book of Acts, where they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and especially if you get the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, we're not really supposed to have an us and them mentality. We're supposed to have a Christ-like mentality that says, bring it. 
whatever is going to attract people who are not there yet to examine the evidence in a safe environment so they can encounter a really powerful living Lord and then be transformed by him, then let's do that. That's the attitude that I think we should be having. Well, we need to go into a little detail now about King Herod and John the Baptist. There were two Herods that we will know about because of the Gospels. There are actually more than that. It's been a couple of years since I went into all the Herod ancestry, so I'm sure that all of you have that remembered really well. I'm sure you've memorized it, everything there is to know about the ancestry of the Herods, because it's been four or five years, but I know that you remember stuff like that. I'm only going to focus on two today because those are the ones that have anything to do with our specific focus. There is the big guy, Herod the Great, and I put that in air quotes because he wasn't really that great a guy character-wise. He was great because he would force people to do hard labor and build great buildings in the edifice, and he's building the glory of Rome. But he was a pretty despicable person and a paranoid leader, which is a little scary. So he was the great, he's the big guy, he's like the, the godfather of the Herods. He made a lot of people offers they could not refuse. And if they did refuse, he'd probably lop off your head. That was Herod the Great. He's the guy that we see when the Magi are coming to follow the star in the Christmas story looking for Bethlehem and they stop off at his place and he says, oh, and by the way, if you find this baby of whom you're seeking, please let me know so I can go and <laughs> worship him too. <laughs> and of course we know that was not his plan fortunately they went another route on their way back they did not let him know that but Herod still had a plan to try to get rid of the promised Messiah because he was a paranoid leader he was afraid that this new promised leader was going to overtake him so he ordered the killing of all newborn babies up to age two in Bethlehem baby boys not a nice guy that reminds me every time I read that passage I have to think of little Chloe Elwell when she was about eight years old and we were doing a Christmas play, and she had a line in it, and she said, that Herod is not a nice man. And I thought, that's kind of understated if we really knew the despicability of this guy, but that's true. That has always stuck with me, and she is so right. That Herod was not a nice man. He was appointed, Herod the Great, by the Roman government. It's not an elected official, and he ruled over Judea. And because the Jews inhabited that region, that meant that because of his position, he was actually considered the king of the Jews at that time. But this Herod was not a Jew ancestrally. He wasn't a Jew by birth. There was no Jewish DNA, no Hebrew DNA in this Herod. So he was a convert. And I suspect that was the uh, little problematic for many of the historic Jews who felt that they needed to have a good bloodline there. So they didn't think too highly of Herod the Great for that and many other reasons. So think of this first Herod like the head honcho Herod, the godfather of the Herods. And after Herod the Great, none of the other Herods had as much influence or power or reach as Herod the Great. Herod the Great had, believe it or not, 10 wives. And as you can imagine, a lot of kids waiting around for some nepotism to happen. They just couldn't wait for daddy to pass along some of that power and prestige and wealth because they thought that was great growing up in the palace the way they did. And so they wanted all that. And yet, after Herod the Great passed away, they had to divide up these different regions into four. So there were four tetrarchs, none of them actual kings, including the next guy we're going to look at, which was Antipas. And he's the guy that we can fast forward and saying, now that John the Baptist has come along the scene, 
This is the guy who's ruling that region in Galilee and Perea. Much smaller region, but that's where it intersects with our story as we're thinking about John the Baptist and Jesus. So to give you an idea about the timeline, Herod the Great was appointed in 37 B.C., so this is leading up to John the Baptist and Jesus. That would have been fairly close, all in all, to the time that Jesus was actually born, but not close enough because Antipas then, or Herod the Great is the one, of course, when Jesus was born. But when Jesus began his ministry at about age 30, Antipas is reigning in this area right now. So you got it? Antipas, it's spelled like antipasto, if you like antipasto salad, but with a toe cut off. It doesn't sound right. Antipasto with a T-O cut off at the end. Antipas, anyway, Antipas. Say it with me, Antipas. Look to me in my eyeballs. Okay. Just want to make sure you're tracking with me. So we got Antipas, and he's a power-hungry little wannabe king who didn't have the title of the king, but he was always pushing for power. He wanted the plastic nameplate on his desk. He wanted the gold gilt lettering on the glass of his door so that when people entered you know, his office, they would think, ooh, I'm impressed with all this guy's wealth and stuff. But that kind of pride kind of got Antipas in trouble with the Roman government later on. He, he created problems for himself. And usually power-hungry people do wind up bringing problems upon themselves. So Antipas doesn't control the entire region of Judea. He's only in charge of Galilee on the western side of the Jordan River and then over and down on the opposite side of the river and slightly south in Perea. Um, that's the ruler in Galilee who shows up in Mark 6.16. So Antipas is where we start to intersect now in this story. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, that's like saying, yes, that palace over there which I built. Yeah, he didn't really behead John the Baptist. He ordered somebody to do it, but he takes all the credit. That's what power-hungry people do. And he had John the Baptist beheaded. He says, that's the guy who I think has come back from the dead. That's what Antipas is saying. That's what he's thinking. And we're starting to get to the heart of the reason why this was a scary thing for Herod to hear about Jesus. It was scary because suddenly the evidence is becoming personal to him. And you know what that means, don't you? It's time for apologetics affirmation of Scripture, the new segment that we're incorporating into almost every one of these looks at the Gospel of Mark. You know what apologetics means, right? Apologetics from the Greek, apologia, speaking in defense, is the discipline of defending biblical truths through systematic arguments, employing logic, reason, philosophy, and accurate corroborated source material. And so we're going to incorporate a little bit of those apologetics right here as we look at this passage. Critics of this passage would say, how do you know, Mark, what Herod was thinking? You're just making this up. This is fictitious. This is just mythology. Well, let's reach into our tool belts at our apologetics tool belt and get a couple of the tools out and employ them so that we can find out how do we know? Is it corroborated that Herod was actually thinking these things? One corroborative source for us, which is one of the tools in our tool belt, a corroborative source, is Luke, Luke's gospel. And it contains something really helpful and interesting. Luke 8.3 contains a list of women who helped support Jesus' ministry. They gave of their time, talents, and treasure. Sometimes they would let him stay in a guest room. Sometimes they would cook him meals like Mary and Martha so he could sit around and teach and they would be cooking for him. Sometimes, like Lydia, the seller of purple later in the Acts, we can see that there were women there who actually had money 
and they would give some of their money to help sort, support ministry, much like people support ministers and missionaries today. So this list of people includes something intriguing, though. There were a number of them, but one of them in particular is interesting to us, and that is in 8.3, Joanna is mentioned, the wife of Chuza, C-H-U-Z-A. The manager, Chuza is the manager of Herod's household. Remember you talked about Oikos is the household. That's not just your immediate family, but the servants and everything under your roof. So he was the household or the oikonomos, the ruler of this household. That would kind of be like the business manager. And in fact, the New Living Translation translates it as his business manager. We would think of that today as being somebody similar to a personal assistant. Now, there are a couple of types of people. There are people in leadership who are living in big palaces, and then there are servants. And guess who gets to overhear all the stuff that goes on in the palace? The servants. And Joanna, with her husband, Chusa, would have certainly had access to a lot of overheard conversations. So we know that this place is somebody close to the disciples and who knew them well in the palace of Herod himself. So is there a credibility to that? I certainly think so. Especially when we understand that Luke was just including this randomly. He wasn't doing it for the purpose of supporting Mark's gospel. He just threw that in there because it was true. It happened. And those two things wind up corroborating one another. And that's what brings us to another tool in our apologetics tool belt, which is called undesigned coincidence. In apologetics, there's this thing. It's a thing. You can look it up on the internet. It's called an undesigned coincidence. It's a, an unplanned puzzle-like fit of two pieces of information that show up in two different texts. And they were not intended to support one another. They're just there. And yet, because it's coincidental that they both agree with each other, they wind up becoming corroboration and they support one another. An undesigned coincidence. Let me give you an example. I've shared this testimony because I love it. It meant a lot to me. 30 years ago, when I was getting ready to move back to Michigan from New York, had to plunk down a credit card. I hated doing that. I'm so fiscally responsible and scary about using anything on credit that I, I just hate that. But I knew no other way to do it, and so I put down a credit card to rent the U-Haul truck that a bunch of Sunday school friends were going to help me load up on Saturday. I rented it on Friday. We took it over on Saturday. They helped us load it up. We we're going to move to Michigan. We had been there a year earlier going on faith. God supplied our needs. But it was an expensive credit thing. And I was praying, God, I'm doing this by faith, and I don't know how we're going to have the money at the end of the month to pay off that credit card, but I'm sure praying you'll make a way. So we go to church at the church that we become like family with these folks. The pastor, who's a friend of mine, invites us up, makes us cry in front of everybody in the last day, tells the congregation we're going to send this couple off, give a love offering. They did. We blubbered. A deacon took us out behind the little foyer area. That would be like behind that curtain on the stage and presented us with this fat wad of bills and checks with a number written on the back. And he says, before I show you the amount, guess how much it is. And he put us through that higher, lower game, which is really embarrassing. And then he told us the amount finally. I said, I just, I don't know. Tell it to us. And he told me the amount. It was exactly $1 short of what we needed to pay off for that thing. And how do I know that that was like that? Because it stuck on my memory because this imp inside of me, that seventh grade imp, made me want for a split second to say, you're a dollar short, God. But I didn't dare say that because I knew I'd have to jump back and wait for the lightning to strike. Because instead, what I thought was, that's miraculous. That's incredible. But then, 
On Monday, after we had gone home and finished packing up the rest of the stuff in the house, did a last walkthrough, Joy realized that way back in the front closet was a sweater hanging on a, a hanger. And she goes, oh, good, it's a little chilly this morning. We're going to grab that. So we're going in this foggy morning over to the church to the parsonage to say goodbye to our friends, the pastor and wife, and the kids that used to play with our kids. And she had had that sweater hanging in there for the whole year, never had put it on. Joy has this habit of keeping tissue handy because she has a runny nose sometimes, sometimes she cries. So she was reaching into this sweater to grab a tissue, and what does she pull out? A crumpled up $1 bill. And she shows it to me, and I look at the, the dollar bill, I look at her, and then we cry some more because we know this is a big deal for us right now. Now, here's what would have happened. Now, it didn't, but this is what would have happened if we needed two unrelated corroborative sources. If that deacon had written in a diary somewhere and it gets published, and he goes home and says, I'm so proud of our congregation. We gave a really substantial gift to this sweet family. Really sweet. They're the nicest people. And we took a love offering, and this was the amount that our small congregation gave. And I'm so proud of them because... They saw the need and they rose to the occasion. And this was the amount. Now, if he had published that, he didn't know how much our U-Haul truck cost. I never told him that. Then if we had written in a diary, if Joy had written when she got home, this is what happened today. And little did he know that the cost of our U-Haul truck was this. And then God also supplied that extra dollar the next day as additional confirmation. Then later on, if somebody had put those two texts together, that would have been an undesigned coincidence. And it sounds contrived. If you were to write that into a movie, people would go, oh, come on. That's contrived. You're making that up. But that's what this stuff does for us. And we realize, no, they can't have made that up. It just happened because it happened, and they're writing what really took place. And when we see all these things popping up in the New Testament, that gives us more validation through these tools of apologetics that we can trust Mark's gospel and absolutely trust it. Luke doesn't put the information in there for the purpose of tying it to Herod's mental state, and yet it corroborates that we know now there's somebody within the palace who gets it, they pass it along, and we know that Herod is wigged out because of Jesus, thinking that he may have been John the Baptist come back from the dead. And that concludes this segment of Apologetics Affirmation of Scripture. Meanwhile, back to the passage. Let's look at verse 17 and the murder of John the Baptist. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. It gets confusing because Herod is married to Herodias. They really liked giving names that would reflect glory on themselves, including the wife of Herod. And she had been his brother's wife, her, her, his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. John spoke like a prophet. He wasn't afraid to call out immorality, and he was calling it out, and he called it out big time. You can imagine that did not go over real well with Herod's wife, Herodias. He was calling out the immorality and saying, this is wrong, and you know it's wrong, and you're going to bring trouble upon the people that you're seeking to lead. And he was talking not about politics, but about immorality, which says, I think there is a place for even preaching today, not to become aligned politically, but to call out immor immorality where it exists. That's all I'm going to say about that. Why did Herod 
come across as being immoral to John? Let's point out just four of the reasons why I see they're blatant in this passage. Number one, Herod was married at the time. He was married to the daughter of a king in a neighboring nation, Nabatea. We see that one in the scriptures occasionally. We know that that happened from time to time. A king or a ruler would marry off one of his kids to another ruler's kid for a couple of reasons. Sometimes, as it was in Egypt, as we talked about in one of our Old Testament uh, looks, they would do that hoping that they wouldn't come in and start a war against you because they would say, oh, but they're intermarried and my daughter is over there. We don't want to blow them off the map. We need to make nicey-nicey with them because they have this intermarriage. So that's one of the reasons they would do it. Another is that they wanted more wealth and they would think they have to bring tribute to us if it was a larger country. There are a number of reasons why they did it, but it was common. And that's what had happened with this uh, young lady from the daughter of a Nabataean. So what did Herod do if he was already married? Well, he didn't just have more than one wife right there at the palace. He actually sent her away. Now, how would you feel if you were the ruler of Nabataea and that guy who married your daughter sent her away? I wouldn't be too happy. And it came back to bite Herod later on. It became really difficult for him because there were actually some wars talked about later between those two neighboring countries. Secondly, another reason why John was calling out this immorality, Herodias was also married at the time. They were both married at the same time before Herodias left her husband and hooked up with uh, Herod Antipas. So not only did Herod send his wife away in order to marry Herodias, but she left her husband. It was extremely wrong, especially according to Jewish culture and the Jewish mindset, which is what John was operating from. So the Jews who had the law of Moses at their disposal and what we have now as the Old Testament would say, no, this is absolutely immoral. You can't do that. You shouldn't be doing that. Thirdly, the man Herodias left to marry Herod, this gets even weirder, was Herod's half-brother, Philip. And in case that's not enough to think that this is totally weird, the fourth gets even weirder. Herodias was Herod's niece. What in the world? It's twisted. She was the daughter of another of Herod's half-brothers, so she left one of her uncles to marry another one of her uncles. Ah! Yeah, John, I, I think you had every right to speak up, buddy. This situation sounds like the kind of stuff that Shakespearean plays are written about, doesn't it? I mean, wow. Or King Henry VIII, I don't like this one, off with her head. Uh, I can't divorce her, oh, I'll start a new religion, and then I can be the boss of that religion too, and I can make up my own rules, yay! That's what history does with despots and leaders who are tyrants and power hungry, and we see that it doesn't end well for them. Well, John was not on the committee to reelect the next Herod. And he was not politically motivated at all. He was motivated by God and what God had asked him to say. And he was speaking out like a prophet against immorality. Herodias did not like what John the Baptist was saying about this immorality. But Herod, as we see, was conflicted about John the Baptist. And this brings us to a very important point, and it's the one that I'm going to focus in on in the last few minutes because I want you to be thinking about this one. Look to me in my eyeballs. My new catchphrase. So Herodias, this is Mark 6, 19. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. That was the way she was going to cancel his culture. She was just going to kill the guy. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless. So verse 20, for Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, 
he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Can you hear the conflict going on inside Herod at the time? Yes, I'm going to have him arrested, but I'm going to protect him. Ooh, he's really disturbing in what he's saying about me, but I can't stop listening to him. That was that inner struggle going on right there. And I think that that happens more often than not with people who are coming into a real evidence-based look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't stop listening, but they're conflicted about it. I uh, have told stories about two of these guys, but they look like they come from such different backgrounds that I'm going to reuse them again because I want you to see the juxtaposition to show that it doesn't matter what background you've come from, you can still be drawn to the gospel and yet conflicted about it at the same time. The first guy was Steve, my friend in Arizona. He was not raised in the church or by friends or family who had anything to do with the gospel. He became a very upright guy in a job where Justice was important, and he wanted to make sure that he was morally upright as best as he could be, given the tools at his disposal. He was so good at it that he kept getting promoted until finally he was at the top ranks in his profession. And then he encountered something that left him flat on his back because he was in a very stressful season of his life, and I think the stress plus some bad sitting over a computer got the best of him, and he had some ruptured discs in his back. So he found himself flat on his back, and he was starting to convalesce, and a friend of his said, why don't you come to church with me? I think it'll do you some good. And he's thinking, why would church do me any good? But strangely, inexplicably, he said, okay, like what have I got to lose? So he went to church, and he, like Herod, was conflicted, and yet he couldn't stop listening because he said it felt like that pastor had been reading my mail. He was speaking right to me. So I went home, and I thought, well, good. I got that out of the way. And his friend said, you want to come back this week? And he goes, okay. He couldn't explain it. He's thinking, I didn't want to go back, but I want to go back. He's conflicted. So he goes again, and sure enough, the pastor's speaking right to his heart. Finally, by the third week, he said, I just couldn't deal with it anymore, and I just gave up, and I gave my heart to Christ. He says, I'm that guy now. I'm that crazy Christian guy who goes to small group. In fact, I got to leave in 10 minutes because I got to host a small group tonight so we can dig into the Bible together. This was a guy, and the reason he knew that justice was important, he had been promoted all the way up through the ranks of cop and motorcycle cop and commander of a post until finally he was in charge of the internal affairs division of the Phoenix Police Department. He knew that evidence was important. That's what they did. They didn't base anything on hearsay. It had to have been evidence-based. And so all of a sudden, he's got enough evidence that he goes, I get it. It became personal to him, and so he took that step. Now, on the opposite side of somebody who was not very moral when he was growing up as a young man was Louis Zamperini, the runner in California, who became an Olympian and then went into World War II. They were on a search and rescue mission in an old beat-up, shot-up airplane, which developed mechanical troubles, crashed into the Pacific. He survived an incredible number of days, 47 days in a life raft, just eating raw fish, grabbed an albatross that landed on the boat and used it for bait so they could catch more fish. They were strafed several times by Japanese airplanes, shot some holes in the raft that had to use their patch kit. It was an incredible, harrowing thing. And you think, oh, good, finally, they're going to make it safely to shore, except that they made it to the Marshall Islands in Japanese territory. Ugh. So then he's a POW for over two years, and because he's a big name in America, they want to make an example of him, so they treated him worse than anybody. Torture over and over again. Finally gets released toward the end of the war, 
goes home to California, PTSD like you can't imagine, I can't, and he tried to use alcohol to numb the feelings and to try to keep those nightmares from coming back, and his wife finally said, I can't deal with this, the, the alcohol is taking over you, I'm going to have to divorce you. Then a neighbor of the Zamperinis invite her to a Billy Graham meeting. They, they called it a crusade back then. It was a revival meeting in a huge tent just outside Los Angeles. And she gives her heart to Christ. Then she goes home and after, after hearing about how Christ will forgive us no matter what we've done, she said, I have to forgive him too, as difficult as it is, because his behavior has not been good lately. And she says, so hus husband of mine, I promise not to divorce you. But please come to a Billy Graham meeting with me. No, they argued for a week, and he finally gave in. He went to a Billy Graham meeting, and he, having come from not the same situation that my friend Stephen Arizona came from, found himself looking at all the evil that the world could throw at him, having lived through over two years of torture from humanity, inhumanity to humans, and yet he heard this same story of the gospel about forgiveness. And he couldn't stand it because he didn't want to listen to it. He almost stormed out of the place, and yet he couldn't stop listening because he was like Herod. He was drawn to it and yet repelled from it at the same time. It's like those magnets when you're doing science experiments. It's like, bleh, bleh, until finally he couldn't deal with it any longer, and he gave his heart to Christ and became quite an evangelist and gave a lot of the rest of his life toward telling people about his story, even to the point of going back to forgive the people who had treated him so poorly in Japan. Incredible story. Why do I bring these two guys up? Because no matter where we come from, whether we're churched, not churched, morally upright, ethically upright, a scoundrel, a cad, we can still be drawn to that same gospel because it's for everybody. And even if we feel slightly repelled because we think, uh-oh, that means I might have to change something, we're still inexplicably drawn to it because we're drawn to the Christ who gave his life for us. The Holy Spirit does that. He'll start reeling us in closer and closer. I wish I could say it ended well that way for Herod Antipas, but we have to wait until next week to find out. And in the meantime, I want you to be thinking about how this intersects with your story and with some of the people in your life that you want to be praying for, because I know that the same God who reaches out to people like Steve and Louis and Herod can reach to anybody today, and we want him to do that. Let's pray. Father, I pray passionately for those people who are not yet where we are, and I don't want us to develop an us and them mentality. I want to be an open door, a safe place for people to come and encounter a living Jesus so they can be transformed by him as we are being transformed knowing that we're still a work in progress and that you who began that good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Help us to be a part of the attraction process because they're attracted not to us, but to the Jesus in us so that they can see the evidence for themselves because we want to have a great reunion with as many people as possible someday in heaven because you're preparing that place for us. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.